Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Happy New Year to all. 2023, what a grace to be given a new year. Sincerest thanks to Brady and Diana, of course, for leading us in worship. You know, in reflecting on the beauty of worship, the great evangelist, George Whitfield. George Whitfield declared, Imagine when lifting up holy hands in prayer for one another that you see the heavens opened and the Son of God in all his glory as the great high priest of your salvation pleading for you the all-sufficient merit of his sacrifice before the throne of his heavenly Father. We have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. If we could see Jesus praying for us, which is in fact the reality in heaven, what confidence might we have? What anxiety would fade away? What problems would grow strangely dim? Might we be more than conquerors through him who loved us? Paul asks the church in Rome, that it is the Lord who goes before you, that he will be with you, that he will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Beloved, such truths are ours this morning as we gather in 2023. And one of the means, the special means of grace to impart this courage to our life is the preached word of God. And what purpose and power God has put into the preached word. You know, I was reminded this week by a brother how few sermons we actually remember. Yet God uses them to sustain us to where we find ourselves today. And consider how many meals in your life do you actually remember eating? Very, very few, actually. And some of those meals were amazing. And yet some were also quite forgettable. And yet they nourished you to allow you to sit right where you do this morning. You don't remember them, and yet here you are, healthy and nourished. And while every pastor would muse that his congregants hang on every word and sermon, the truth is that you probably remember very few. Yet here you are. What a wonderful Father. What a glorious God feeding and nurturing us. Amen? Amen. Well, two weeks ago, before leaving Mark for our Christmas message, we began a three-part series titled, The Three-Pronged Attack, with Jesus having just decreed a scathing rebuke against the Sanhedrin in his parable, The Vine Grower exposing their hypocrisy and scams in the temple market, they left Jesus to collude and to plan the final downfall of this menace from Galilee, who not only cost them a lot of money clearing out the temple, but would dare cause them to lose face in front of the crowds. In part one of our series, we began to see the, the framework beginning to be built of their collusion and their planning and what would be this three-pronged attack to get Jesus to indict himself. And to remind us with a broad overview of the conniving three-pronged attack against Jesus, recall that each will involve an individual element of the Sanhedrin, each representative of religious life in Israel. 
Now, our first attack in part one came, if you recall, from some very strange bedfellows, right? That of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, in normal times, we recall that the Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians were a political party. They were Hellenistic secular Jews who wanted to restore a a Herod to the throne of Judea. And, of course, the Pharisees wanted a descendant of David on the throne. Now, these two parties were on opposite sides politically, spiritually, you name it. So these are two very strange bedfellows to be coming together. And yet we are reminded of the ancient proverb that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? They were willing to come together for the common goal of indicting Jesus. And of course you recall their question to Jesus concerned whether or not one should pay taxes to Caesar. No matter which answer Jesus is going to give to their question, they want the subject matter witness there to take Jesus down. If Jesus answers one way, We have the Pharisees to accuse him. If he answers another way, we have the Herodians there to do the same. It really is diabolically planned, with them covering what they think is either conceivable answer from Jesus. The Pharisees can get Jesus for the wrong religious answer. The Herodians can get him for the wrong political answer. Either way, we've got him. We've got him. Of course, calling for the denarius, which we did a bit of a deep dive into explaining that coin and the significance of it, having Caesar's likeness upon it, Jesus declared in verse 17 to render to Caesar the the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Of course, the first element that strikes you is that Jesus did not give a political answer to this. He gave a spiritual one. Because the heart of this is a spiritual question. We were reminded that politics flows downstream from the heart. There is not a political solution for a heart that needs to be made new. We mine the depths of Jesus' response here to the Pharisees and the Herodians with so many points of application. Such an excellent text demonstrating as well what is known as sphere sovereignty. That there is a divine line between the sphere of the church, of which Christ is the head, and the sphere of government, which God has instituted for both the promotion of good and the checking of evil. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Such application for the church today as we have wrestled with an ever-growing and dominating state that would leave its God-given sphere of authority and would seek to play God to her citizenry? And Jesus' response is masterful. He's no insurrectionist, as they hoped he would be. Getting Jesus to advocate a position against Rome would have been an easy kill for them. But Jesus is not cutting the middle ground of pragmatism here, lest we think that. Both are true. We render unto Caesar. We pay our taxes. But our love and our loyalty and our affection and our worship are not due to Caesar. Even though the denarius calls Caesar divine, our lives belong to God alone. And they were amazed at him. So the first attack has been launched and it's been rebuffed. The Pharisees and the Herodians have gone away, making way for our second attack. So with that, beloved, let's look to our text. Mark 12, 18 through 27. Mark 12, 18 through 27. Then some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, 
came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up a seed for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first married a wife and died leaving no seed. And the second one married her and died leaving behind no seed. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures, nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of this text this morning. Lord, in awe of the word that was made flesh, that was made incarnate for us, that speaks with such wisdom and such power. Lord, we, as we watch this second attack come upon the Lord of glory, we are reminded that it is in your divine hand and divine timetable, done and accomplished for our redemption, Lord, that we might sit here this morning as those bought by a great price. Heavenly Father, as always, we ask that the arrow would find its mark this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, in 1819, at approximately 70 years of age, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, completed what was known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, Jefferson was what we would call a naturalist. He did not believe in the supernatural. He did not believe in miracles, did not believe in the deity of Christ or his resurrection. And thus, Jefferson set out to make his own Bible. Taking the four Gospels, Jefferson literally snipped out clippings, keeping only the parts that contain no miracles or claims of deity, no angels, no demons, no resurrection, nothing supernatural, and he pasted them in a book titled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. This became known as the Jefferson Bible. Now we're so fond of saying that there's nothing new under the sun, because indeed there's not. Now, Thomas Jefferson was what we would describe as a modern-day Sadducee. As we open our first verse, verse 18, let us look to this lesser-known group that will lead our second attack. So look with me, saints, to verse 18. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus. Now pause there for a moment so we can look at who these men are known as Sadducees. We'll first talk about who they were, and next we'll look at what they believe, because that's what's going to drive the rest of our narrative. Now by the numbers, the Sadducees were actually the smallest number numerically in the Sanhedrin. They were the smallest, but they were the most powerful. And they were most powerful because they were the wealthy aristocrats from these small priestly families. 
And because of this, it was the Sadducees that effectively ran the temple. Right? They were really in charge of the temple. Even though they were small numerical, numerically, they wielded the most power. So this also meant that they were in charge of all that buying and all that selling that was happening in the court of the Gentiles. This is the group whose pockets Jesus hit when he cleared out and cursed the temple bazaar. So it was the existence and the operation of the temple that was essentially the sole reason and purpose for the existence of the Sadducees. Okay? That was their power center. This is where they derived their world from. And this is evident because after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, we never hear of this group again. No temple equals no Sadducees. They're gone. But more importantly than who they are and what their function was is what they believed, what they professed. Now, we already gave a good deal of that away, having compared Thomas Jefferson to them, and indeed, that is an accurate comparison. Now, our text alludes to it by saying simply, then some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Now, that is very true, but there's so much more to it than that if we're to appreciate the totality of this exchange. Now, the Sadducees were naturalists, as we said. Right? They, they were what we would describe today as, as rationalists. Okay? Believing only that which could be proved by observation. They rejected the supernatural. They rejected the existence of angels or demons. They rejected any notion of resurrection, as our text says. And therefore, they reject any notion of an afterlife. And speaking of the Sadducees, the historian Josephus, he wrote, quote, The doctrine of the Sadducees is this. Souls die with bodies, close quote. Now, why would they think that? We have numerous Old Testament texts that speak of resurrection, yes. In Job, in Psalms, in Isaiah, and Daniel, it's everywhere. So how could they reject this? Well, Sadducees were essentially irreligious in a way. If they were alive today, they would likely be like your theological liberals, Right? The person there explaining how Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he just fell asleep. Right? Eliminating the supernatural and seeking to explain all the scripture with natural explanations. Right? There's a huge strain in theological liberalism that aims to do just such a thing. They might even be our atheistic naturalists or our humanists today. But in this day, atheism as it were really didn't exist. Right? Atheism, the denial of God, is a relatively new phenomenon. The Sadducees acknowledged God, but listen to this, saints. They swore loyalty only to the Torah, only to the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. That was the only religious text the Sadducees accepted. And because they thought there was no example of resurrection in any of these five books, they rejected any assertion of it from any other Jewish text. Show it to me in the Torah, all right? Show it to me in the Pentateuch, or I don't accept it. Now, why do you care about that, Lanesville 2022? A few reasons. A few reasons. One, it brings out the full beauty of Jesus' response to them, as he is going to quote the book of Exodus back to them. You think there's no resurrection in the Torah? Think again. Try again. Second, it's instructive for us that we are to take in the whole counsel of Scripture. 
Yes, we read scripture in parts when we sit down, but it is delivered as a whole. It is meant to be understood in light of itself. Right? Scripture interprets scripture. Had the Sadducees had a sound hermeneutic, meaning how we read scripture, they would have interpreted the unclear in light of the clear. Where they saw what may seem like only hints of resurrection in the Torah, the Psalms would have proclaimed it. Job and Isaiah and Daniel would have proclaimed it. The shedding of light on what is more shadowy language. And this matters for us today, beloved. This matters. The error of the Sadducees comes upon us when we become cafeteria Christians. Walking through and picking out what we like. How many of us are tempted to make our own Jefferson Bible in our mind? Right? We carry the whole Bible in our hands walking into church this morning, but our minds are one big Jefferson Bible. Oh, pastor, I don't like that doctrine. Get that out of here. I know it's in Scripture 62 times, but I don't like it. Skip over it. Snip, 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 snip. Make that Jefferson Bible. We often hear accusations in church life that someone is a Pharisee, right? That they're a legalist. But how many, in fact, are Sadducees? I meet a lot more Sadducees in modern evangelicalism than I do Pharisees. I meet a lot more that reject clear doctrine and teaching in Scripture because it does not align with their preconceived notions all the time. Now back to our text. And began questioning him, saying, all right, so here comes the big ask. Here comes the question. All right, I'm going to read this question as one because that's how the original audience would have, have heard it and understood it. And then we'll pick apart and we'll drill down on it. So look at the question. Here it comes once again. Verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 through 23. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up a seed for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first married a wife and died leaving no seed, and the second one married her and died leaving no seed, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. All right, a few things to observe right off the cuff here. You know, anyone who's had the opportunity for evangelism, which I pray you do, was someone who's quite hostile toward Christianity. You'll notice that most have basically the same arguments and counterpoints, right? And when speaking with them, they'll often have what they consider to be that gotcha question, won't they? That one that they're really proud of that they think is unanswerable, that disproves your silly faith in some mythical sky daddy. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? If God is good, explain evil. The usuals, right? That's what we see here. This question is the go-to gotcha question for the Sadducees when they're arguing with the Pharisees. They think this is the ultimate stumper against this resurrection nonsense. Thus, they are approaching Jesus with really an air of cockiness, right? They're thinking that they are about to stump the chump. Riddle me this, teacher. Right? It's dripping with disdain. 
This is the seeming intellectual Sadducee about to pounce on this poor religious simpleton. That's the atmosphere in this exchange. So look it up back at our text. We see in verse 19, they tell us right away what their authority is, don't they? Moses wrote for us. Now that makes sense to us now. You understand that. We understand why they say that. That's all they cared about. What did Moses write? All else is subject to that. Anything written after those five books were merely a commentary on the first five books. That's it. That's how they viewed it. Now, as we get into this question, I'm not going to get into the weeds of the intricacies of it because the meaning of the text does not lie here. The the takeaway and majority of the application of the text does not lie in the question either, but in Jesus' answer to the question. However, let's briefly look at it, this question. The Sadducees here, they've, they've really concocted what they believe to be a truly ridiculous scenario. Right? They developed a hypothetical situation. Now, I know in homeschooling, we teach our children both the elements of logic and of fallacies. How to use the principles of logic and how to recognize fallacies and refute them. This is what the Sadducees have done here. The argument that the Sadducees are employing is what's commonly known as reductio ad absurdum, which is Latin for reduction to absurdity. To absurdity. It's a form of argument which attempts to either disprove a statement by showing how it it inevitably leads to a ridiculous or absurd or impractical conclusion, or to prove one by showing that if it were not true, the result would be absurd or impossible. That's exactly what we have here. It's an absurd argument. It's meant to disprove the resurrection by showing that if, it, that if it were real, the result is a ridiculous, impractical conclusion. And Spurgeon writes of this encounter, quote, Probably this was one of the stock stories they were in the habit of telling in order to cast ridicule upon the resurrection, close quote. So the basis of the Sadducees' argument here is drawn from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. You'll notice the capitalization in verse 19. You notice that? That means that we're directly quoting the Old Testament here. Now, we're not going to get it, do a deep dive into this because, again, the meaning does not lie in the question. But the essence is this. A man marries a woman and he dies. Okay, the law speaks to this situation. It tells us that if that happens, if there's a brother, he's to take over where the other brother left off. And the purpose of that law really is twofold. First, if this law wasn't in place, there would be no one to care for these widows in this society. She would be forced to turn to begging. That's what happened in this time. And second, this preserved the line and the lineage and the property of the deceased brother. In other words, God has made a provision in the law for a family to be raised up in name and property rights for a husband who dies with no male heir. There needs to be a continuity there. That's great, but what if the guy had seven brothers? Seven brothers, and all kept their duty, but they all die, never producing an heir. Now, of course, this is absurd, but that's exactly the point. And now the woman dies as well. And here now is the gotcha moment in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Boy, have they got Jesus now. 
Can you just hear their prideful hearts churning? Right? I almost, when I read this, I hear like a Richard Dawkins type of accent, ridiculing Christians when I read this. They say, in the resurrection. Of course, they don't believe in the resurrection, do they? They believe when this woman died that she's snuffed out, that there is no afterlife at all. This entire scenario is meant to show a fly in the ointment. But what is the problem here? What is the main driver and source of the error? The root is actually not on the Sadducee side, which is wrong. It's actually on the Pharisee side. The Sadducees are only using the teaching of the Pharisees, which was essentially that the afterlife was merely an extension of this life. It's a better version of it, but nevertheless, it's basically the same. Bad theology begets bad theology. That's what's happened here. So the entire premise of their absurd hypothetical is false, right? But it's not enough to know that something is false. Why is it false? Where's the breakdown? What's the root? Let us go there with our Savior and his response. Look to me to verse 24. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God? Now this is a fascinating response that exposes the heart. Number one, Jesus tells them that they are mistaken. It's hard to hear those words out of anyone's mouth anymore, isn't it? A dear brother, Todd Friel, some of you may have watched him on Wretched TV, he often goes out to evangelize and he films a lot of these encounters to encourage and to equip the flock. In one such video, he's endeavoring to show the absurdity of postmodernism. Right? The thought that there is no absolute truth, that it's all relative, that we make our own truth, especially when it comes to matters of belief and religion. And to help these folks see the absurdity of this position, Todd would make some outlandish statements like, I believe that all rocks are really made out of jello. And he would ask that person, am I wrong? And nine out of ten, particularly on college campuses, he could not get them to tell him that he was wrong. If you believe the rock is jello, then the rock is jello. He'd say, no, but it's a rock. You can see it's a rock. You know it's a rock. It's not made out of jello. Just tell me that I'm wrong. And they can't do it. They can't utter the words. So let us take a page from our Lord's response. You are mistaken. You are wrong. Say, well, he's God. Of course he can speak with such authority and certainty. Who am I? What does Jesus use as the basis for his response? Scripture. Scripture. Jesus did not respond with some sort of Gnostic secret knowledge. It's in the Scripture. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he did not conjure up a lightning bolt to take Satan out. He said, it is written. Do we see the theme here? Scripture is enough. Scripture is sufficient to answer the world. But watch Jesus' response here. He really breaks up their error into two parts. First is what? You do not understand the scriptures. Ouch. This said to the ones who thought that they had ultimate allegiance to the Torah. Yet they are mistaken. 
John MacArthur writes about this verb mistaken, planeo, quote, from which we get, get the word planet or wandering bodies. The verb is meant to cause to wander, to lead astray. You're leading yourselves astray by your biblical ignorance. You're mentally wandering. You've been cut loose from reality. You've been cut loose from reason. You've been cut loose from truth. That's why false teachers in Jude 13 are called wandering stars. That's the reason. You are mistaken. First, because you do not understand the scriptures. Now, what do we do with that? Someone not knowing something may be their fault. Maybe not. In our English, we really can't tell. But once again, our Greek is to the rescue. Our word here for not, not, is written to not only convey a negative ignorance, but also a positive unwillingness. You don't want to understand. You purposely disregard the scriptures you don't want or don't like. And eventually, because you would not understand, now you cannot understand. It used to be said that America is gospel-hardened, what with having a church on every corner. America is not gospel-hardened. We are gospel-ignorant. Countries are sending us missionaries now. Yes, we have a negative in, in ignorance, but it is born and bred in the incubator of a positive unwillingness. And so they are mistaken. Back to our text, first because of their ignorance of Scripture, and secondly because they do not understand the power of God. Now there's so much that can be said in this sphere, but for the Sadducees, what does this mean specifically? It means that the God the Sadducees worshipped was not even capable of a miracle. He was not capable of the supernatural. You don't understand the power of God. It's often said that God made man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. I can't perform a miracle, so neither can God. I don't see angels or demons, so they don't exist. I don't witness the supernatural, so God must not be. Self is at the center. What I witness, what I observe, what I feel, what I desire, that is truth. And I shall call that truth God. Of course I love and worship God. How could I not? I've made him just as I want him. Come to think of it, he's a lot like me. No wonder I love him so much. You don't understand the power of God. You don't know him. And the God you have made, you have made in your own image. It's not the God of Scripture. Exactly what Jesus is saying here to the Sadducees. Their God is not the God of Scripture. You don't understand Scripture, both through your negative ignorance and your positive unwillingness. Nor do you understand the power of God. Of course, even closer to home for us, beloved, is to look at these two exhortations in balance for us this morning. How many of us specialize in one or the other? We have great understanding of Scripture, but we fail to grasp the power of God that is necessary to apply those truths to our lives. Or we simply run after and desire the power of God, the power of God, but neglect the very word that is the sword of the Spirit. 
power, power, power of God, say many, but we do not know the word. Beloved, we must have both. We must dwell, both must dwell richly in us that we might not fall into the error of the Sadducees. Back to our text, Jesus is going to go on with his explanation. The Sadducees would be seething at this point, incredibly angry. They are the temple head honchos, being told that they're ignorant and that they don't even know God. So look with me to verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, now pause there, not if, but when they rise from the dead. Jesus just tramples over their entire theology in this opener. There is a resurrection. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now at this point, if there are any Pharisees within earshot, they're perking up. Remember, their teaching was that the afterlife was just an extension of this one. That's what made the Sadducees' absurd argument against the Pharisees so effective. If that's the case, if we just carry on in a better version of this life, you've got some real interesting situations that you're going to have to work out. So the Sadducees aren't wrong to ask this based on their faulty presuppositions. But this is not the case. We are neither married nor given in marriage. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to imagine a time where I would not be married to my wife, where we don't have a spouse. There are many questions we have about this aspect of heaven and this aspect of eternity. Scripture tells us some, but it conceals much of this glorious reality. Some things we're just going to have to wait to know till we get there. We know that we will know each other. We, know, we will know of our life on earth. But our dynamics of family relationships will be different. And how that all works out, I don't know. We do know that there will be no more need for marriage. No more need to produce heirs. Heaven is heaven. We won't need those things. Marriage is a divine institution, but it is also an earthly institution. Now, I wish I knew more. Most people want to know more. Right? That's why they're so drawn to books and interviews about those who have supposedly been to heaven, because we want to know. And by the way, those are not to be listened to. We have a man in scripture who was taken up into the third heaven. His name was Paul. What he saw was so wonderful, he wouldn't even open his mouth to speak about it. That's someone who's been to heaven. Nobody went and hung out with Jesus for half an hour by a river and came back to sell a million books. That's not how it works. Last part of verse 25. But are like angels in heaven. Angels do not procreate. They do not marry. Right? There are as many angels today as there were created. Some are fallen, some are not. That's where we will be like. That is what we will be like. And thank the Lord that we will not be angels. People often say when a believer passes that they're an angel in heaven now. Wings in a harp. They'd better not be. What kind of demotion is that? We will reign with God in heaven. Angels serve God. In fact, Scripture says, do you not know that we will judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6.3 You'll be like angels. And finally, Jesus puts the final nail into the coffin by quoting the very Torah, the very Pentateuch that they claim such a selective loyalty to. 
Look with this, verses 26 and 27. I'll read them as one. But regarding the fact that the dead are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Boy, what a treasure trove lies within. I see no one brought their lunch with them, so I'll give you the abbreviated version. Listen, but regarding the fact that the dead are raised, there is no debate. And in fact, you've read it, but you've not understood what you've read. You, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? Of course, that's Exodus 3, right? That's the Torah. Now, can you hear their wheels beginning to turn? Burning bush? There's no resurrection there. What is this guy talking about? But first, don't miss this here. Jesus said how God spoke. We cannot gloss over this. By way of reminder, by way of encouragement, by way of certainty, when Scripture speaks, look, God speaks. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Exodus, God spoke. It's such a simple little phrase, but one upon which we might hang our assurance and our boldness and our surety of faith upon. God spoke. Grab it, hang on to it, sing it, shout it, remember it. God spoke. And what did he say? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, wait a minute. Are the wheels of these learned lords of the temple beginning to turn? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was, I am. I am. Present tense. As I speak to you now, Moses, I am the God of these men. And I am not the God of the dead, but of the living. Some people's eyes gloss over, you know, when pastor starts talking about Greek verbs or tenses. Thinking this is for academia somehow. But do we realize that in one present tense verb, one, Jesus just turned their entire theology on its head. One, I am. Present tense, right now. But I'm also not the God of the dead. Why is God not the God of the dead? Because there's no such thing. Beloved, pay attention to this. Death is an act. It is not a state. Death is like birth. It is a singular act. After that, you are alive. After you are born, you are alive. After you die, you are alive. Hebert writes, quote, Death is a change of relation to the world and to men. It does not change our relation to God. Close quote. Grasp and remind ourselves of this, beloved. Everyone who has ever lived is still alive. They went through the act of birth and the act of death, but their state before God is alive. 
Every person you will ever meet is an eternal being. Isn't that something? Every person you will ever meet is going to live forever in a place called heaven or in a place called hell. That's the gospel truth. Now, meditating on this truth touches every area of our lives. Might that impact how we treat or how we think of a fellow image bearer, no matter what they've done? Might it change our constant draw and need to make this world and the things of this world our reward and our comfort? When we've been there 10,000 years, we've only just begun. Because he is the God of the living. Do not be mistaken as the Sadducees. Their error was grave. They neither understood the scriptures, nor do they understand the power of God. If you do not know the scriptures, you do not know God. Period. And if you do not know the power of God, you will be helpless to apply those truths of scripture to your life. Ultimately, their error would seal their living fate. We do not pick and choose what compromises and what comprises our Bible. Beloved, Thomas Jefferson is alive today. He is alive, awake, conscious, and will be forever. He can see, smell, hear, feel, and think. Where he is right now as we speak is based on one thing, his relationship to the Father through Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. If your Jesus this morning does not reflect the Christ of Scripture, you have a different Jesus, and he is powerless to save. Now, some are tempted to have made their own Jefferson Bible in their mind or their heart, Repent of that today and receive the whole counsel of God that we might know him rightly because he is the God of the living, not the dead. May we not be as the Sadducees, but may we be alive unto Christ this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as it is so often with your words to us, Lord, these are hard sayings, Father, who can know it? These are hard, but we need it. But Lord, we're not even capable in our own stead, in our own strength to receive it. Even that we are dependent upon you to give to us. We ask, Lord, that you would take this word, that you would bury it down deep, Lord, that it would foster joy for those that know you, Lord, and terror for those who do not. Lord, you are good and faithful this morning. As we begin this new year, we ask that our word, that our eyes would be strongly fixed on your word, Lord, and all that it has for us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.